You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good evening, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. It's Tuesday, November 12th, and we thank you for tuning in. I'm Nick Savage. And I'm Andrew Eichen. Tonight, we bring you a brand new segment, as well as coverage on a memorial making its way around campus. In addition, we've got a report on terrorism charges brought against a man in Cary and a unique event hosted here at NC State. But first, here's Sydney with international news. Thanks, Nick. The massive typhoon Haiyan hit the Philippines Friday, leaving absolute destruction in its wake. The hardest-hit region was the city of Tacloban in the province of Leyte. The predicted death toll due to the storm is 10,000 or more, but due to the slow pace of recovery, the official death toll remains well below that. Many are desperately hoping that the toll stays below 10,000. But the Philippines is receiving little relief, as they are expected to be hit by Tropical Storm Zoraida Tuesday until Thursday morning. The American Red Cross has launched efforts to support recovery in the Philippines and asks that anyone who wishes to donate or support the effort to, re- to visit redcross.org.ph. Garment workers in Cambodia gathered together Tuesday to protest for better working conditions and pay, but the workers soon clashed with riot police, resulting in 20 injured and one dead. The violence supposedly erupted after a few police officers tried to negotiate with the protesters when the workers surrounded them and threatened to beat the police officers up. Two days earlier than expected, Egypt has announced its plan to lift its three-month-old state of emergency. With the end of the state of emergency, the curfew currently in place will end, along with legal police arrests and house searches without warrants. Eighty people have been reported to have been publicly executed in North Korea on November 3rd. These executions have been linked to minor offenses, anywhere from pornography distribution to possessing a Bible. Back to you, Nick. Thanks, Sydney. Thanks, Sydney. And now let's turn to Andrew for our national news highlights. One World Trade Center has been declared by a committee of architects to be the tallest building in the U.S. at 1,776 feet. The council has reached the verdict that the building's 408-foot needle atop the tower counts counts to the building's overall height. Without it, One World Trade Center would still be shorter than the 1,368-foot building formerly known as the Sears Tower, now called Willis Tower, in Chicago. Former President Clinton said today that President Obama should find a way to let Americans keep their health coverage under Obamacare. Although defending the act, Clinton said, quote, I personally believe even if it takes a change in the law, the president should honor the commitment the federal government made to those people and let them keep what they've got. But added, the big lesson is that we're better off with this law than without it. And American Airlines and U.S. Airways have settled an antitrust suit with the U.S. Department of Justice, leading to a merger that would create the world's largest airline. The Justice Department sued to stop the $11 billion merger in August, but are now allowing it. The airlines will each give up 57 slots to low-cost airlines at Ronald Reagan International Airport in Washington, D.C., and 34 slots at LaGuardia Airport in New York City. And that's the news. Thanks. Andrew? Well, Katie... You know, I've been hearing some reports of snow across the state this evening. Isn't that kind of early for that? 
Well, Nick, you're right. It is definitely early for North Carolina, especially the Triangle, to be seeing snow before Thanksgiving. And it's actually snowing out there right now over state's campus and over sections of central North Carolina. There was mainly a rain-snow mix occurring over most of the region, and this mixed wintry precipitation has been reported as far south as Garner in southern Wake County. Now, the snow should taper off within the next hour or so. Today, an Arctic cold front passed through the central part of the state, which caused gusty northerly winds and a drop in temperatures. This system was also responsible for producing the rain and snow across the state of North Carolina. Now, by later this evening, it will definitely begin to feel like winter out there with a low of 26 degrees, which is six degrees below freezing. Tonight will be the coldest night so far of the season, so have your winter gear ready if you are planning on heading out. Tomorrow morning, grab your fur winter coat on your way out the door because we will be right around the freezing mark until the sun gradually heats things up to a bearable high of 45 degrees by mid-afternoon. Tomorrow night will be the coldest night this week with a low of 25 degrees and clear skies. So make sure to crank the heat before you go to sleep. Thursday, sunny skies and warmer temperatures will return to the triangle. So we will finally be back to our typical fall-like weather. Highs will be in the mid-50s and lows in the upper 20s overnight Thursday. Slightly warmer than Wednesday night, but temperatures will still be below that freezing point. Friday looks like a great way to end this work week with highs hitting 60 degrees and mostly sunny skies. A perfect day to enjoy your lunch break outdoors if you can. And Friday night will be significantly warmer with lows at around 40 degrees and mostly cloudy skies. And the good news is is that we have a warm fall weekend ahead of us with highs in the low 60s and lows in the upper 40s. Skies will be mostly cloudy, but you might manage to catch a peak or two of sunshine throughout the day on Saturday. So overall, we had an Arctic blast of cold air move in from the north today, which caused a bunch of snow across the state of North Carolina, bringing us unseasonably cold weather tonight through tomorrow night until a strong high-pressure system builds into the region on Thursday, warming us back up to near-normal temperatures. I'm meteorologist Katie Costa. Thanks for tuning in to your weather here on Eye in the Triangle. Back to you, Andrew. Thanks, Katie. And now here's Ben from the sidelines. From the sidelines on Eye on the Triangle. Your weekly update on athletic events. The NC State football team traveled to Durham this past weekend to take on the Duke Blue Devils. The Wolfpack lost the game 38-20, but the game was not without its bright spots. Shadrach Thornton rushed for over 100 yards. Rashard Smith had a second punt return touchdown of the year. And Quentin Payton caught an 80-yard touchdown pass from Brandon Mitchell. The defense was led by Hakeem Jones, who had a forced fumble as well as an interception. At 3-6, and six, the football team is now forced to win their next three games if they want to qualify for a bowl game. The next game will be this Saturday at Boston College. The men's basketball team opened their season with an emphatic 98-77 win over the Appalachian State Mountaineers. Sophomore forward T.J. Warren led the way with 27 points and 8 rebounds to go along with 3 steals. The Pack got an unexpected offensive outburst from junior transfer Desmond Lee, who finished the game with 24 points on 10-for-12 shooting in his first game as an NC State player. This young Wolfpack team is playing in a huge test on the road today against Cincinnati. The women's basketball team had a good start to the season as well, being St. Bonaventure and Towson by scores of 70-47 to and 69-46 to respectively. Early in the season, the Lady Wolfpack has shown the ability to get points from many different sources, with five different players scoring double figures through the first two games. State will test its 2-0 record against Presbyterian this Saturday at Reynolds Coliseum. The men's soccer team was able to finish their regular season on a high note this year, ruining rival UNC senior night in a 1-0 win in overtime. 
Senior Nazmi Abadali scored the golden goal in overtime to beat the Tar Heels. Other State missed out on a spot in the ACC tournament by one point. The Pack is still hoping for an at-large berth in the NCAA tournament. The men's soccer team finished their season with an 8-5-4 record. The volleyball team got back on form this week, picking up crucial ACC wins against Clemson and Georgia Tech. The Wolfpack beat Clemson three sets to zero in a terrific performance. State had zero service errors for the first time all year, and junior Darian Hopper led the way with 15 kills. Later in the week, State beat Georgia Tech three sets to two in a thrilling game. Freshman Maggie Speaks turned in an amazing performance with 37 assists from the center position. With the two wins this week, the women's volleyball team is now at 19-7 on the season. Their next game will be this Friday against Virginia. In their tri-meet with Duke and Miami, the swimming and diving teams came away with a sweep, the women beating both teams and the men beating only Duke, seeing as Miami did not compete with a men's team. Both teams continued their impressive week when they beat UNCW on Saturday. The women's team is now ranked 13th in the country, and the men are ranked 10th. Their next beat will be the Nike Cup Invitational in Chapel Hill on November 21st. The 12th-ranked NC State Rifle Team tied the program record in the Air Rifle Competition by firing a score of 2,336 to finish first at the Southeastern Air Rifle Conference match Sunday afternoon. With the win, the Wolfpack improves to 15-4 on the season, remains unbeaten against SEARC competition at 13-0. That's it for this week, but as usual, tune in tomorrow at 7 for Pulse of the Pack for a more in-depth look at Wolfpack sports. Thanks, Ben. The Red Dress Raleigh 2013 Fall Fashion Expo is this weekend. Here's Michaela with more. Redress Raleigh equips people with the knowledge to make eco-conscious apparel choices from materials to upkeep and produces an annual show that highlights the latest creative and eco-fashion. The company also works with local green designers to increase their social impact and grow their market. Redress Raleigh is a one-day mini-expo event that will include two fashion shows featuring vintage and local designer collections, as well as an all-day marketplace that showcases the variety of responsibly made products that they have there. The expo will introduce designers who are revolutionizing the fashion industry with innovative, accessible, and eco-conscious designs. Throughout the day, designers and vendors will be selling and showing their designs in hopes to show the many different directions the future of sustainable fashion holds. For every Fall Fashion Expo Pass purchased, Redress will donate $1 to benefit Interact of Wake County's operation. Interact is a private, nonprofit United Way agency that provides safety, support, and awareness to victims and survivors of domestic violence and rape and sexual assault. The marketplace opens up at 2, and the vintage fashion show starts at 3.30. At 6, the designer eco-fashion showcase begins, and finally at 9, it closes. And all of this takes place in the Durham Armory on November 16th. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Michaela O'Connor. This week, we would like to introduce a new segment called Poets' Corner, highlighting poetic talent right here at NC State. Everyone has a story to tell, but how they tell it differs. Whether you're a poet, spoken word artist, singer, an actor, a musician, everyone has that story to tell. And here is the place to tell it. Welcome to Selma's Poetry Corner. Hi there, my name is Selma Abdulhai, and welcome to the Poetry Corner. Um, it is technically a new segment, but it is bringing it back from a couple years ago. It's a reboot, yeah. It's a reboot, but it's a reboot that needed to happen. Uh, on the air with me, I have an amazing poet named Tyree Day. 
He is on the poetry staff with the Raleigh Review, a local literary journal. Please tell us a little bit more about the Raleigh Review, Terry. Uh, yeah, Raleigh Review is a nonprofit literary magazine. We have art, fiction, poetry. We have readings. We uh, we host many different workshops. All the information is on RaleighReview.org. We're also having an open mic November 23rd. And if you're interested in signing up, you can reach me at tjday, D-A-Y-E, at ncsu.edu. Or you could look up the Raleigh Review on Facebook. Yep, and also uh, I wanted to shout out a, a great art event that's coming up, our, our art website that's coming up, hosted by Ruthie Calloway. It's called In the City of Oaks. It's going to be published in January. It's definitely something to look out for. Sounds good. Uh, what do you have prepared for us tonight? I'm going to read two poems here. The first one I'm going to read now is called Nick at Night. Nick at Night. In his poor man's rage, my father would bang his tired hands against the thin walls, cursing God's name, hating how he would have to let the water run a little before the brown scales disappeared. Among her new in-laws, my mother was not loved, let alone liked, and her nervousness that would later be diagnosed and prayed for in the darkness of her bedroom did not help her with his older and protective sisters. My cries must have made him pace the whole trailer. Each scream, a reminder of everything he didn't have, like the men my parents watched on the late shows. The only time she would see him smile was after Dick Van Dyke tripped on the stool before the show ended and it suddenly collapsed. It was the old pond in the front yard blowing brown needles everywhere that did it. That made him leave us with the spring, his hat low, walking against the dirt-throwing wind of his life. And the second one I'm going to read is called Work Nights. Tonight, my walk was quiet. The cedars were singing under the street lamps. I could almost hear it. And one lone work van passed me, a man too many beers in, snaked home, his wife asleep with the window wide open. She knew the low hum of the old engine in a dream, but not the one where she finds the still flaking white crushed in between the thick bark that lines this road. But who am I to give a man his faith? And Lake Johnson sounds glorious from here. This is God talking, but I cannot take the dark path in. I cannot face my devils. For once, I want to cup and drink the darkness in search of the feeling you get When your fingers touch the cold railing of your front steps that says for once you're not going to walk into an empty house, the lights hum something like praise when you cut them on. For once, I want to sleep easy in the pastel tangle of sheets, a low chatter in the thicket outside. It's hard to believe in God when you make $7.58 an hour and your lady forgets you at work, so you walk and stare at an eight-ball black night. And I'd bag everything and double bag it if I had to. I would go home and touch her strong legs, iced in moonlight, and say I love you, drunk on brown ale, and wonder who I was talking to. Outside our window, black buzzards made the shape of mountains where men dare not stand, where young boys go to test their father's wild ways, where we go to jump, sleep. When I was small and easy to kill, I ran away from home and reached 97, hoping it would look like something else. 
my book bag filled with pants and shirts, my hands still shaking. Thank you so much, Tyree. That was Thank beautiful. Um, I started this new segment, uh, well, rebooted segment, the Poetry Corner, in order to give local artists a place to tell their stories. And I'm hoping that I can continue this every week. And if you would like to approach me about performing, you may find me on Facebook. My name is Selma Abdulhai. Or you can... Uh, Find Nick Savage. You could also email us. Yes, uh, we email are, us. The email will work. That would be publicaffairs at wknc.org. That'll work. Indeed. Great. Thank you, Tyree. Thank you. Thank you, Tyree, and thank you, Selma. Thank you. The Women's Center at NC State is hosting the Silent Witness Project, which is a memorial to victims of domestic violence. To maximize awareness, the memorial will be placed in different areas around campus throughout the course of this school year. This week, Sydney sat down with Otis McGresham to find out more. Here's their discussion. So tell me a bit about what you do here. I work over in the Women's Center. My official title is the Rape Prevention Education Coordinator. What that means is I am in charge of programming, educational events, awareness events, really ways that we get as the Women's Center can get information out and engage the student population, really all NC State, with issues of Sexual violence, sexual harassment, domestic violence, really we call IPV or interpersonal violence issues. Raising awareness about it, engaging students in ways that they can prevent it from happening, and engaging students in ways that they can make our community safer overall. And then from a student affairs background, I also get to engage all of our student volunteers. So if you decide you want to volunteer at the Women's Center, I'm the person who does kind of the intake and the orientation and connects you with kind of what we do in terms of programs or services and connects that with what your passion areas are. All right, fantastic. So... What we have going on right now at NC State is something called the Silent Witnesses Project. What can you tell me about that? The Silent Witness Project, it's modeled after a national movement, the Silent Witness Initiative, whose entire goal is to eradicate murders as a result of domestic violence by the year 2020. Their main way of promoting information and education about it is a, the Silent Witness campaign. It's a red silhouette that bears the story of a person who's been murdered as a result of domestic violence. Our Silent Witness Project is focused purely on North Carolina and the college-age population. So really connecting domestic violence to the traditional college age, that 18 to 24 population, and then specifically incidents that happened in the state of North Carolina. We've got two kind of variants from that. One is a 15-year-old who was murdered out at Lake Jordan, so the close proximity to campus. And then the other is the 41-year-old who was murdered over in Cameron Village last year. So those two are, are one of our 10 witnesses that we have in our exhibit. All right. Where is this exhibit on State's campus? It was, as a whole, at Tally when it opened for October, which is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. And then for the duration of the academic year, different campus departments and offices can volunteer to host a witness. So right now we've got witnesses over being hosted by student health promotions on the first and second floor of the Student Health Center. We've got witnesses in Wolf Village, Wolf Ridge, Caldwell Lounge, 1911 Atrium. The GOBT Center will be hosting a witness. I think that's all. Without my spreadsheet in front of me, I can't tell you where they all are. <laughs> that's but, all right. It's a great representation yeah. already. Yeah, the idea is throughout the academic year, you won't, you won't see the entire exhibit as a whole, but students would be able to engage a witness in their classroom or in their living environment or where they socialize. So kind of creating domestic violence awareness is more than just a targeted, here's the one time that you think about it, but here's how you can think about it and, and act on it in your everyday life. I see. So you purposely trying to place all of these silent witnesses in areas 
that students will be able to easily access them. Yep. The only criteria for hosting a witness is that it's got to have some type of student visibility. So if it's in a lounge area or a hallway area, somewhere where there's a little bit of student traffic, there's got to be some type of oversight. So unfortunately, in today's day and age, we got to think about theft and we got to think about vandalism. So is there somebody who can provide a deterrent to that? and then be in some way or shape or form connected to the university. So really targeting this community. But other than that, it's any department, any group that has a space to display a witness will loan it out. It's a four to six week engagement. I've got student volunteers who work here with the Women's Center who will pick them up and move them. Our first move from Tally was relatively successful. The rain caused a little bit of a delay. But other than that, it was uh, the witnesses got picked up, got moved, relocated with no injuries. So Oh, great, great. Yeah. So witnesses or volunteers will come pick up the witnesses, relocate them to their new host location, um, and then we'll rotate them about every month. I see. So what is the goal so far of the Silent Witness Project here at State? Is it just a matter of having students notice them? Is it having them become more educated than they already were? Is it having them actively engage with the project and try and find out more? What what exactly is the aim? Well, when I started it, there were two. First was just the, the awareness of domestic violence as an issue on campus, so kind of connecting it to uh, our campus population and engaging students and, and thinking about, wow, this really does happen. And that's why we, I selected uh, the stories that I did, having them uh, specifically tied to North Carolina, specifically tied to kind of our environment and our college, traditional college-age population. Um, there is a QR code on each witness that links back to our website that gives information on what the Silent Witness Project is, information on domestic violence awareness, and then some information on some bystander-type um, behaviors that you can exhibit, um, as well as some additional training and educational opportunities provided by the Women's Center. Um, so that's that active on the back-end piece. Now that you know about the issue and, and the impact that it can have on our community, here's some things that you can do to help prevent it. On the unintended, I guess, consequence is I've had lots of students who – uh, have it volunteered with the Women's Center because that, that exhibit that they saw in Tally really spoke to them. And it's like, I really want to be connected and feel that this is important. It's something that I should do. Um, so kind of that connection to the work that the Women's Center does as a whole has been an unintended consequence. It really was started as just truly domestic violence awareness and getting people engaged and active in terms of making our community a little bit more supportive and a little bit more uh, intolerant of that type of behavior. It so. sounds like it's been pretty successful. It has. I I, I started it with if kind of it's something I had in my previous institution um, and looked at kind of the program that we had here in terms of the Silent Witness pro- Project, and it wasn't quite as durable and as, 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 as implemented as, as it could have been, so I brought it up to my director and said, here's what I have as an idea of what this could be. Here's how much it would cost. Here's, like, can I make this work? Uh, and she gave me the blessing to go ahead and try it, and, and it's been extremely well received. That's so great to hear. And you mentioned uh, a second goal, right? The second goal really was that that active piece, so getting people aware and, and kind of moving toward um, actively reducing. So it's not really enough to know that domestic violence happens. You know, if, if, a, yeah. if a person walks away from the Silent Witness Project and says to themselves, oh, it sucks that domestic violence happens in, in my reality, but then that's the end of their internal conversation, that's not really all that we wanted to accomplish. We really want there to be some type of what can I do to make my environment a little bit safer, to make my environment a little bit more supportive of those who are impacted by domestic violence? Okay, I see then. So since this is this is indeed through the Women's Center, does this, I guess, affect men as well? Are there men included in the domestic violence, whether as allies or as victims themselves? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the Women's Center is a, a, caught in a bit of a, a, a conundrum. So uh, we service really gender equity and social justice. So it crosses gender, it crosses identity. Um, men are just as impacted by domestic violence as women. Um, 
statistically, if you look at it, men are more often than not going to be the perpetrators of domestic violence. Um, but that does not mean that men aren't, aren't survivors or victims of domestic violence. It also doesn't mean that men aren't um, ones who grew up in a, in, a, in a home or an environment that had domestic violence as a part of that and the impact that has on the relationships they'll have with their peers, they'll have with their um, partners uh, in terms of their, their romantic relationships. Um, so men play a, a significant role because they're half of our population. You can't engage the population in, in culture change and ignore half and say, well, this isn't really your issue or your problem. Um, so everybody's got to be involved. Everybody's got to participate. So it's really geared at um, being gender neutral uh, in terms of raising awareness of domestic violence as an issue and then gender neutral in terms of displaying or showing people ways that they can they can take action to prevent domestic violence from happening. That makes sense. Do you guys ever run into, I guess, any walls when it comes to trying to engage men as well since, you know, coming from a place called the Women's Center focusing on domestic abuse that most people naturally assume affects only women. Do you ever, I guess, experience resistance? I wouldn't say it's resistance. I'd say the automatic response is this doesn't apply to me. And because I work at the Women's Center, do a lot of tabling events, and I represent as a male. So I, I hear a lot of people with one of two different arguments. One is it's the Women's Center, so it's not for me, which isn't entirely true for all the reasons we just discussed. And the second is wanting to be respectful of a place that gives support and resources for women, which I can appreciate the sentiment, but still not really what our goal and purpose is. So when we start talking about gender equity and engaging the entire population, the entire community, it's more important that all members are there so that as you look around, you can see people that look like you, people that don't look like you, and that shared idea or that shared concept of making our community a little bit safer. So I definitely hear it, and it's an opportunity for education to allow people to understand fully what the Women's Center does in terms of our education efforts and kind of what we're looking for in terms of our programming and involvement. Okay, then. How else can people try and get involved? Do they have to walk right into the Women's Center to do so? Well, you can walk in and, and present yourself and say, hey, I've got this really great idea or I've got some time to give and I want to volunteer and we'll get you connected. You can go to our website uh, it's and locate on there our, our volunteer contact log and that fill that out, what it is. It's a, it's a Qualtrics form. Um, you fill in who you are, what your year is, what your major is, what you're interested in. Uh, that form actually comes to me as a volunteer coordinator and I will then get in touch with you to set up your orientation and figure out exactly what you're interested in and how it lines up with the programs that we have. Um, we've got my, my goal and my effort and my commitment is to make sure that we have at least one volunteer event every month. Um, because like I said, we've got 63 volunteers, but generally it's going to be one or two at a time. So you don't really see the connection of that volunteer community. Um, so our volunteer month's going to be a three hour block at least once a month where multiple volunteers can come together, see other people connected to the women's center, see other people with similar passion areas as theirs. Um, and then we'll do something tangible that the Women's Center needs. So for Domestic Violence Awareness Month, we ha- we created um, publication pieces and, and, and information pieces to hand out. Um, this upcoming event, we'll be doing the marketing for our November 26th event. So um, at least once a month, we'll get together as a group. Um, but then it's really going to be as your interest and as our needs kind of require. So stop by or stop by the website. And that was only part of what we talked about. If you'd like to tune in to hear the rest of what Mr. McGresham says, please join us next week. For Eye on the Triangle, this is Sydney Bloom. Thanks, Sydney. Yesterday, a federal grand jury in Raleigh indicted a man in Cary on charges of attempting to aid a terrorist group. Andrew has the story. A Cary man is facing federal charge that he attempted to aid a foreign terrorist organization. Basit Haved Sheikh of Cary is suspected by the FBI of trying to provide support for al-Nusra Front, the al-Qaeda branch currently operating in Syria. Sheikh has been held by Wake County authorities since November 2nd. 
when he was intercepted by law enforcement at Raleigh-Durham International Airport. Sheik was attempting to fly to Canada and then Turkey and then Lebanon, from where he believed he could be smuggled into Syria, an FBI affidavit states. Sheik said in August that he had secured a job, quote, with a brigade of logistics managing medical supplies. Sheik is 29 and lives at his father's house in Kerry. He was born in Pakistan and lived in the Republic of Seychelles, an island nation in the Indian Ocean, from 1992 to 2000. The FBI document used in his arrest states that the obvious sign of Sheik's radicalization was his Facebook page. Sheik regularly posted articles about jihad and interviews with Taliban leaders and Syrian Mujahideen. It even seems the social network was aware of the significance of these posts, as his account has been shut down several times. The FBI's source whom Sheik contacted earlier this year, eventually leading to his arrest, was found through an Islamic extremist Facebook page. However, Sheik does not seem to have been in any way persuaded by the FBI to try to travel to Syria, as he already desired this having previously made two attempts to join the civil war. In the fall of 2012, he traveled to Turkey and joined the Free Syrian Army, but left after a month, disillusioned with the group's supposed interest in money. On September 5th of this year, Sheik booked a one-way flight to Istanbul, but never showed up at the airport. Sheik expressed his desire to the FBI source to join the group Arar al-Sham, the principal faction of the Syrian Islamic Front. Three weeks after his aborted flight to Turkey, the FBI source put Sheik in touch with one, quote, trusted brother of the militant group al-Nusra Front, the Iraqi branch of al-Qaeda. The trusted brother was in fact a covert FBI employee. Sheik was arrested on November 2nd at RDU. He's being held without bond. If convicted, he faces a maximum penalty of 15 years imprisonment, a $250,000 fine, and three years of supervised release. This is the second time in recent years that an arrest for terrorism has been made in the Triangle. In 2009, agents found almost two dozen weapons and thousands of rounds of ammunition in the home of Daniel Patrick Boyd. A group of eight men, now known as the Raleigh Jihad Group, were accused of trying to commit terror overseas and at the U.S. Marine Corps base in Quantico, Virginia. Daniel Patrick Boyd, the accused leader, was born in 1970, the son of a Marine Corps captain. His parents separated in 1974, and his mother married a Muslim lawyer from Washington, D.C. Boyd later converted to Islam at age 17. In 1989, at age 19, he moved to Pakistan, first helping refugees of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, and later training as a Mujahideen. He returned to the U.S. with his brother, also a convert to Islam, after being accused of robbing a bank in Peshawar. The brothers were sentenced to have their right hands and left feet amputated, but the ruling was overturned after it made international news. Boyd raised five children in Garner, where he opened a Mediterranean grocery known for its halal meat. Boyd, two of his sons, and four others were arrested by federal agents on July 27, 2009, accused of planning to attack targets in Gaza, Israel, Jordan, and Kosovo, as well as the U.S. All seven were convicted, with Boyd receiving 18 years in prison after cooperating with officials and testifying against several of his co-conspirators. An eighth man, Jude Keenan Mohammed, age 20, is thought to have also been involved with the group. An American citizen, he traveled to Pakistan in 2008, where he was arrested by officials for trying to enter a tribal area along the Pakistan-Afghan border. He was killed in a U.S. drone strike in 2011. 
Although both of these cases were halted before they could come to the level of action, such as the Fort Hood massacre or the Boston Marathon bombing, it's important to remember that all of these men were wrong. They were not motivated by faith. Instead, their faith was distorted and debased so that it might excuse their actions. They were not possessed by religion, but by ideology. An ideology of selfishness and hatred that has possessed so many millions before. It is my position that these acts are no more significant than any other planned act of violence. Situation and circumstances had led those who would commit them to find justification by faith, but it is still only that, situational and circumstantial. Anyone who would plan to do harm to others has clearly reasoned it out in their own mind, in a logic that would surely appear aberrant and perverted to others. We ought not to explore the madness of a few bad men and seek to apply it to the millions of peaceful believers, as it is clear that it is the peaceful who really believe. Around the Triangle, I'm Andrew Eichen. Thanks, Andrew. For the, past, for the past few years, budget cuts have been affecting pretty much everyone's lives. Here's Michaela with more on NC State's budget cuts. The NC State budget has recently been put under review, and managers all across campus are going to be reevaluating the budget to get more for our dollar. Ginger Burks will be spearheading this task, and she's really looking forward to tackling these reevaluations. And there is no need to fear because she was a really qualified individual. She worked for the UNC General Administration's office for about 10 years, and while she was there, she was developing budget policies and priorities, similar to what she plans on doing here. These budget changes are really going to be affecting our campus and the students. This year, there was about a $21 million reduction in our funding, which passed in the General Assembly and was signed by the governor. To kind of counteract this, managers are hoping to cut about $2 million from non-academic expenditures, and academic programs will be affected as well. Over the past 10 years, the university has sustained about, in total, $163 million worth of cuts. Over the years, there's been a downward trend of funding given to the university, which affects class sizes, research labs, and an increase in faculty teaching loads. To help offset these cuts, the university has begun to implement efficiencies, which is stuff like energy-saving awareness. A couple of weeks ago, the chancellor revealed a website for students and staff to suggest ways to help save money or generate revenue. So definitely check it out, and maybe we all can be a part of making our campus better. For Ion Triangle, I'm Michaela O'Connor. And now, here are the campus happenings for the next week. Here's what's going on at NC State. Tomorrow at 7 p.m., the African American Cultural Center and Eno Publishers invite you to attend the 27 Views of Raleigh reading in the Sankofa Room of Witherspoon Student Center. Enjoy an evening with creative writing faculty members from NC State, members of the Carolina African American Writers Collective, and African descent writers who contributed to this wonderful collection that portrays Raleigh through poetry, fiction, and essay. Tomorrow is also America Recycles Day. A fun and educational fair will be held on the Brickyard from 11 a.m. to 1.30 with chances to win prizes and much more. Come out to learn about campus recycling options and zero-waste efforts. Interested in foreign foods? Head out to the International Coffee and Tea event tomorrow in Brooks Hall from 3 p.m. to 4.30, where international students will serve up their favorite coffees, teas, and snacks from their home countries. 
Thursday evening, on-campus dining halls will be hosting their annual Thanksgiving dinners. Come out to enjoy your favorite Turkey Day treats done the NC State way. At 8 p.m. on Thursday and Friday night, the NC State Dance Program has its fall concert, where many cultural themes will be showcased through various choreographic works and movement studies. Attendees can expect a diverse, textured collection of student work ranging from introspective and thoughtful to clever and punchy. Friday, the Office of International Affairs will host a Pangea race from 2 p.m. to 5. Multinational teams will test their global and local knowledge as they follow clues around NC State campus and try to complete the course fastest, with prizes awarded to the winners. Saturday at 9 a.m. is the Miracle Run 5K on NC State's Centennial Campus. The race helps raise funds for the Duke Children's Hospital and Health Center. Sunday the 17th, the NCSU Music Department is celebrating its 90th anniversary with a very special performance. The department will be joined by the Raleigh Civic Symphony in a concert at 4 p.m. at the Duke Energy Center for the Performing Arts. Check ncsu.edu music for more information. This weekend at the Campus Cinema, the films Elysium, Jobs, and Grown Ups 2 will be showing. Check uab.ncsu.edu for times. For more information on these events and more, go to ncsu.edu calendar. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Savage. And as always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, you can let us know on our Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter at WKNC underscore EOT. Also, be sure to check out our blog at WKNC.org, where you can also download our podcast. Well, that's all we have for now. Be sure to tune in next week. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Andrew Eichen. And I'm Nick Savage. Good night.